We are almost in week seven of lockdown. We have entered phase two of the NHS's pandemic plan. And this tells us what we already know in general practice. This is the new normal. It's Friday, the 1st of May. Welcome to the Hot Topics podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, wherever you are in the world at the moment. Thanks for tuning in once again. My name is Neil Tucker. I'm from MB Medical. This is the Hot Topics podcast. And this is yet another coronavirus special, Do the Drugs Work? So today we're going to have a little look about some of the data that's been coming out over the last couple of weeks about some of the drugs that are being suggested as possible treatments for coronavirus going to have a look at some of the existing drugs that patients may be on and how they might affect coronavirus. And we're going to have a little think about the vaccines as well that are being produced. But first, we're going to have a look at some of the other interesting topics that have come out over the last few weeks, including what we're going to do about our children, uh, what we're going to do about care homes, what on earth the end game is here with coronavirus and reasons to be optimistic. So now if you hear some random noises in the background of this podcast over the next 20 minutes, that is a jackhammer. It is outside the front of my house and it's a little indication that some things are trying to get back to some degree of normality now. I've definitely seen a uptick in the number of vehicles that are out on the streets as I'm going to work in the mornings and now Thames Water are digging up the street outside the house. Now, whilst this is not very convenient when you're trying to record a podcast, it's very convenient for day-to-day life. The sewers around here appear to be the diameter of slightly less than the average width of the human poo. As you can imagine, this has caused many problems over the years and they appear to be sorting it out today. So I'm going to put this down to another COVID positive. Another COVID positive that I heard this week is the schools are gearing up for possible reopening in June. So for many of you, this will be a very welcome thing indeed, but it obviously comes with its own degree of complexity. And just as we've reconfigured general practice over the last few months, schools will have to reconfigure themselves yet again as well. One of the suggestions is that kids will need to maintain social distancing within the class. As the parent of a five-year-old, I have absolutely no idea how they'd possibly be able to manage this. The only solution I could come up with is using those cones that vets put around dogs' necks after they've had some kind of injury. And if you can do that for children and have them one metre wide each, then I think that might just about work. Given that this is a pretty remote possibility, I think it would be understandable if quite a lot of parents would be somewhat nervous about sending their kids back to school into the mix again when they've been protecting them at home for so long. So that raises two questions. Firstly, how severely affected are children by coronavirus? And secondly, what are the implications to the wider population with children going back? For instance, will this increase the rate of transmission? Answering the first question based around the UK government data is quite difficult. So there's been less than 2,000 confirmed cases in England in children between the ages of zero and 19 years old. This represents somewhere less than 2% of the total number of positive cases in England. Now, we need to remember that most of this testing is done in the context of more severe illness in hospital admissions. And whilst the UK data isn't particularly enlightening, at least we have fairly good media coverage of young people's deaths. So thankfully, it seems there's only been a handful of deaths in this younger age group. 
A useful paper is recently published in JAMA Pediatrics, which sheds a little bit of light on this subject. So this was taken in the first two weeks of the Spanish pandemic and screened 365 children who presented to 30 hospitals around Madrid and the local area. So 11%, 41 children were confirmed with COVID-19. 60% of those were admitted. But actually the rates of severe illness were really fairly low, with only four of those children requiring any kind of respiratory support more than simply oxygen via nasal prongs. And thankfully, all of them recovered. This mirrors a slightly larger study of 730 children from China, where they found that 2.8% of children only had more severe respiratory problems, so hypoxia and oxygen saturations of less than 92%. And we shouldn't forget that even these figures are not truly representative of the whole um, child population, because these are simply children who have already presented to hospital, they are already more unwell. And so it will be a very skewed representation compared with if we screened the whole of the general population. A few weeks ago, there was an editorial published in the Lancet Infectious Diseases Journal, which was highlighting some of the Chinese data. And um, some of that found that asymptomatic carriage in children was as high as almost one third. And even that was still not full population screening. But it does raise the interesting possibility that children can be vectors for the disease. The majority of them will be very well. Many of them won't show any symptoms of any kind of illness whatsoever. So whilst perhaps we don't need to be too concerned about the risk to children, some may be concerned about the risk to others that they then interact with. This week sees a very interesting editorial in the BMJ about the effects that coronavirus is having on children and not so much the direct physical effects due to COVID-19, but perhaps the effects that are a bit more hard to quantify. So one of the really important roles that schools has is in protecting vulnerable children, in providing them with meals and a place of safety. We know that calls to domestic abuse lines are dramatically up in this lockdown period, and that's obviously going to be having an effect on some children. The editorial highlights that the restrictions placed on society have largely been for the protection of older adults at the expense of perhaps those who are younger. And perhaps it's now time to start thinking more about the younger population and what they need to be happy, safe and healthy. We've gained more useful information on asymptomatic carriage in other groups as well. So there's two papers which are published in the last couple of weeks, one looking at care home residents in the US and another looking at a homeless shelter in the US. And this raises the idea not just of asymptomatic cases, but pre-symptomatic cases as well. The care home study has clear direct relevance to our practice, the nursing homes that we're looking after on a day-to-day basis, and the outbreaks of COVID-19 that we're already seeing around the country in these facilities. And it provides a window into what we can expect and how we see this disease spread. So they'd identified the index case for coronavirus in the nursing home. And then they did this point prevalence survey whereby consenting residents would have a oral or nasopharyngeal swab one week apart, and then they would follow up the symptoms of those residents. So by 23 days after the index case was identified, 64% of the care home residents, so out of 89 people in that care facility, tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. 
just under half had symptoms at the point of diagnosis, but over half of them had no symptoms when they were confirmed positive. A quarter of the group never developed any symptoms at all and were true asymptomatics. And then another quarter were pre-symptomatic. So they developed symptoms over the next few days. Prognosis was pretty poor in those symptomatic cases. So by the time they closed the study, a quarter of those positive for COVID-19 had died with another fifth still hospitalised. And those figures really highlight the challenges that our colleagues in the nursing and care homes around the country are, are, are facing at the moment. It's so hard to prevent that spread in these closed facilities. The second paper was published in JAMA, and this was a study of a large homeless shelter in Boston in the US. Some of the residents had already been diagnosed with coronavirus, and so they tested every single person in the facility, so 408 people. 36% of the population there tested positive, and of that group, 88% were asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. I think what this shows us is if we want a successful strategy whereby we can contain coronavirus in these kind of settings, then we need to have widespread testing. So it's welcome that England and Scotland now have the ability to test asymptomatic people in care homes. I think this needs to be expanded into other settings where there are large numbers of residents in a confined space. Now, I should take this opportunity to say a big thank you to all of you who have continued to contact us over this difficult period. So thanks for your support for the podcast, for the webinars and the other resources, but also thanks for the information and lots of you sending us some really useful questions and useful bits of research that have broadened our understanding of coronavirus. We know that this is a multi-system disease. It is not just about respiratory illness. And thank you to Philippa for sending in this link to the Lancet Gastro and Hepatology Journal which highlights the effects that coronavirus can have on the liver. So this is something I think that has gone somewhat under the radar, but from a case series in China, they found that somewhere between one in six and half of patients with coronavirus develop liver abnormalities with, uh, with raises in their ALT or AST. These increases are greater with greater severity of the disease. And the authors didn't go on to discuss the importance of these changes. So whether people actually developed fulminant liver failure and needed more treatment for that, or if these changes were reversible. But it did just make me think, as yesterday I was signing off on some blood results and I saw one younger patient with an isolated raised ALT and I was scratching my head about the potential causes of this. And it turns out that she may well have had coronavirus a few weeks ago. And I wonder if it could be linked as ever with the shape-shifting condition. You can't guarantee anything. And we all know the myriad of causes for raised LFTs, but now perhaps we need to stick coronavirus on that list as well. Okay, so in the second half of this podcast, we are going to have a look at potential treatments for coronavirus. Everyone's scared of this condition. The world is in lockdown. We're all desperate for some kind of effective therapy to help mitigate the risks and just get us out of this terrible situation that the populations are in. It's unsurprising in this kind of situation that people are grabbing hold of any small piece of hope that they can get. Doctors are not immune from this. We are desperate to help our patients. 
But we need to remember that the history of recent medicine, particularly with pharmaceuticals, is littered with the graves of good intentions where ultimately many treatments end up causing more harm than they do good. So before we rush to start prescribing medications we've virtually never heard of before to all of our patients, we really do need to take a step back and have a look at what we know about them. Question if we really know that this drug will help or indeed if we know that it will harm. Question the quality of the data that's come out about that drug. And there are good quality trials going on around the world for a range of different treatments. But the reality is that we don't really have good data in almost anything just yet. So let's have a little think about the drug du jour, and that is remdesivir. So this is a broad spectrum antiviral medication that was developed particularly to help with Ebola, in which initial data had suggested it was quite helpful, although in real world use, it appears less effective than a range of other therapies available. Then earlier this year, it was shown to have some improved outcomes in monkeys infected with SARS-CoV-2. There's a huge amount of excitement about it, and they started large-scale human studies in a number of different parts of the world, including China and the US. Indeed, in the US, they're recruiting 6,000 people to a large randomised control trial of remdesivir, which is hoped to provide some conclusive answer to its effectiveness. However, this week, preliminary results were reported in the news. Stock market shot up at those positive reports, and yet none of this has been formally published yet. So the excitement was because it demonstrated a reduction in the mean duration of symptoms from 15 down to 10 days. Of course, what many of us want to know about is mortality. And although the figures looked promising, so mortality was 8% in the remdesivir group compared with 11% in the placebo group, this actually didn't reach statistical significance. So all we can really say at this point is that the results are inconclusive. This shouldn't be a surprise. This is one of the reasons why they're trying to recruit 6,000 patients and not just 1,000. They need to adequately power the study. But it's hard to see why stock markets around the world are getting so excited. This clearly isn't a magic bullet. Yes, even if it's demonstrated to have a one quarter reduction in mortality, that in itself is welcome, but it's no huge solution to the worldwide problem of coronavirus. Any shine of these results is tarnished by a Chinese study of remdesivir, which is just published. This well-conducted, placebo-controlled, blinded, randomised control trial failed to demonstrate any improvement in the time to resolution of symptoms, failed to demonstrate any improvement in mortality using remdesivir compared with placebo. Whilst it would be easy to be extremely negative about these results, even these we should probably say are inconclusive because the, the study managed to only recruit about 250 people or so out of 450 people they wanted to recruit because they ran out of test subjects. It was conducted in Wuhan and because of the success of their lockdown, they just didn't have enough unwell people that they could recruit into the study. 
even if remdesivir is somewhat effective in severely unwell coronavirus patients, this doesn't mean there's going to be any role for it in primary care. It's not even an easy-to-administer medication. It's an intravenous infusion. So perhaps general practice needs to look for other answers. Could that be vitamin D? I've seen a huge amount of discussion about vitamin D in medical forums and on social media. And a lot of doctors out there seeming to suggest that it is absolutely the answer, particularly for the black, Asian and minority ethnic populations, which we know do worse with coronavirus than Caucasian equivalents. And it's easy to see why people would make these assumptions, because there's a number of different factors which together appear quite compelling. So if you have darker skin, there's a higher chance that you'll have low vitamin D levels. It seems an obvious link, but the reality is that there's no published data in any group on vitamin D supplementation to help with coronavirus. So much of the work with vitamin D research is theoretical, lab-based, or based around observational data where they look for associations. For all the promise of vitamin D over the years, there's been very little research showing causal benefit. We do know that if you are deficient and have supplementation, you have lower rates of upper respiratory tract infections, asthma and COPD exacerbations. So it might be possible that you could reduce your chance of catching coronavirus by boosting your levels. But we can't say this is anything more than a guess. Having said that, we can be fairly confident that it will do very little harm for most people. Indeed, national recommendations are that the population should be supplementing their vitamin D levels. In fact, cards on the table, I take a daily vitamin D supplement. I also don't think I've knowingly had coronavirus, but I also don't think we can draw too many conclusions from that fact. Yes, by all means, take a vitamin D supplement, but please don't sell it as the magic bullet. Now, we know that it's often not the acute respiratory distress syndrome itself that kills people. It's often the associated complications, particularly thromboembolic disease and cardiac disease. In severe coronavirus, these are truly the killers. There's also been some interesting information coming out about the cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19. And one of the features that's been widely seen is these chill brain-like lesions occurring on the digits or even some digital ulceration. Whilst it could conceivably be a vasculitic reaction, it's also very possible that it's small vessel thromboembolisms. So this begs the question, would antiplatelets or anticoagulants have a role in reducing the complications and mortality from COVID-19? So thanks to Susie who sent in this question and a linked piece of research from China where they looked at the role of low-dose dipyridamol for people with severe COVID-19. And it reported that 87.5% of people given dipyridamol 50 milligrams TDS during the severe stages of their disease achieved cure within a few days compared with only 33% in the control group. But before we get too excited, we need to remember that only 20 people were in this trial. Only eight of them actually received dipyridamol. So the numbers are small. So we shouldn't dismiss this data. This could be an important finding, but it obviously needs to be scaled up and looked at in much larger groups in a really well-designed placebo-controlled trial. 
So in answer to the question of should we be thinking about prescribing these drugs in general practice to try and prevent these severe complications developing, to try and prevent people getting more unwell, I think the answer is certainly not yet. We definitely need more data. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard to not do something when we desperately want to do something, but we need to make sure that that something is the right thing. Speaking of the right thing, just a quick update on the old ACE inhibitor and ARB discussion. So initially it was suggested that these may increase the rates of infectivity and severity of SARS-CoV-2 and then cardiologists around the world came out to say, please don't stop these medications. The risk from coronavirus in this context is purely theoretical and the risk of stopping your appropriate medications is very, very real. Then we had a competing idea in an article published in the BMJ a month ago suggesting that for those people who were taking these drugs for low risk indications for chronic disease management for long term, not short term benefits, that there was an argument to stop them during the coronavirus pandemic to mitigate any risks. While that concept may have been undone by a preprint publication in Circulation Research Journal, this was a, another piece of Chinese research, a large observational study which demonstrated that patients with hypertension who are on ACE inhibitors and ARBs had a mortality rate of only one third that of those patients not having ACE inhibitors and ARBs. So whilst it's reasonable to think there may be some residual confounders that they have not been able to control for in these studies, it certainly does look very reassuring that ACE inhibitors and ARBs are safe and probably beneficial in this condition. So then if none of these drugs are the magic bullet for managing COVID-19, could vaccinations be the answer? And around the world, politicians and economists are really hoping that they are. The rate of development has been absolutely incredible. And staggeringly, there are more than 100 different companies trying to make a COVID-19 vaccine. One of those in the most advanced stages of development has been developed at the University of Oxford in conjunction with AstraZeneca. And once again, in business circles, there's a huge amount of hope about this partnership. One of the lead medics was speaking on Radio 4 earlier this week, and he was highlighting the challenges with delivering this kind of vaccination on such a wide scale. He was careful to point out that although they had several hundred participants already who have received the vaccine, it's too early to be able to speculate whether it's actually effective or not. Nevertheless, they're working on the theory that it will be available this autumn but he highlighted the significant logistical challenges of this. So they're keen to try and deliver this vaccine, assuming it is effective, around the world simultaneously. And that, of course, means that you need to have lots of little bottles to put your medicine in. But they're somewhat limited because they can only get hold of 200 million at the moment, which is not enough. Even once you've produced the vaccine in large enough quantities, you've then got to be able to distribute it around the world. So that's fairly easy and well established in a health economy like our own. But in large parts of the world, there's simply not the resources and abilities to go and deliver this. So there's going to be huge logistical challenges. I think in reality, at the moment, there's lots of vaccines in development. Hopefully some of them will be effective. But even if they are, they're very unlikely to be 100% effective. And while the Oxford team is quite upbeat about their timescales for getting this vaccine out, in other areas of the scientific community, they think that a vaccine this side of 2021 is highly unlikely. 
So it certainly sounds like I'm quite downbeat about the promise of a coronavirus cure, but perhaps we're just looking in the wrong place. A really interesting article in New Scientist this week discusses what we know about existing coronaviruses. So they highlight that four coronaviruses cause around a quarter of all common cold. And they suggest, based around the genetic origins of these coronaviruses, based around the similarities with SARS-CoV-2, and based around our knowledge about pandemics of the past and the timing of those pandemics, it seems highly likely that these four coronaviruses that now cause little more than the common cold were actually initially deadly and responsible for some major pandemics around the world over the last few centuries. In time, our immune systems have adapted and now these once life-threatening conditions are nothing more than a sniffle. How long might this take? Well, that's pure speculation. However, there's another interesting article from the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine published this week talking about this idea about pandemic waves as we're expecting the second wave and subsequent waves of this disease. And what's interesting is that from the pandemics that we do have records for, they don't seem to drag on and on. So even Spanish flu, which is widely cited, was largely done and dusted within a couple of years. So maybe we don't need to desperately cling on to hope for some antiviral medication or some new vaccine. Maybe we just need to have a little bit of faith in the miracle of the human immune system and eventually that will be enough. So thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for all your correspondence. Apologies if I haven't had time to get back to you yet, um, but do keep it coming. So you can email on hottopics at nbmedical.com. You can find us on Twitter um, at GP Hot Topics or at Dr. Neil Tucker um, or find us on Facebook as well. Keep a lookout on the MB Medical website for all our COVID resources. They're all free, open resources. Please do um, use them and share them. And keep a lookout on the website. On the 9th of June, we're going to be doing a free evening Hot Topics webinar on mental health in the time of COVID-19. So look after yourselves. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a podcast in two weeks. Take care. Bye-bye.